0: This is Contact Mike. Hello. hello.
1: hello. Mm-hmm. 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 Nice, to nice to see you do. It's July. It's July. It's a podcast about the things that make us human. Moments of change, indecision, and well, Contact contact.
0: Contact
2: Mike is a monthly podcast by Sarah Walker. Oh hello. And Flirt Kilpatrick.
1: Joke, 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 joke. <laughs> it's produced by Kieran Ruffles.
2: Why don't you work?
0: And it's going to start and it's going to start now. Once again, the Contact mic team has been spread out across the globe.
1: So instead of trying to make one story together, we decided to tell you three stories from three different places in the world. We came back together for our usual
0: chat with Fleur and Kieran in a studio in Melbourne, and me sitting on the cobbled stone streets of a tiny Croatian town at 1am. Chapter 1
1: This month in your world, a car bomb exploded in Kiev, killing journalist Pavel Shemet, who had been a vocal critic of leaders in Russia, Belarus and the Ukraine. Our Sarah heard the explosion from her bed. She said it sounded like a clap of thunder. One clap, and a life went out. Elsewhere in the world, a life began. Oh my baby, it's my baby, said her mother. This month, a man's body was found on a road in Manila. The Philippines elected a new president in June, Mr. Duterte, who ran on a bloodthirsty anti crime platform pledging to kill tens of thousands of criminals. If they are in your neighborhood, feel free to call us, the police, or do it yourself if you have the gun, he told a rabid crowd. You have my support. If he fights on, fights to the death, you can kill him. I'll give you a medal. And, Mr. Duterte said, if you are involved in drugs, I will kill you. You son of a whore, I will really kill you. The body in the street was cold. His entire head was wrapped in tape. He wore a sign. I am a pusher. Elsewhere, a little girl allowed to pick her own outfit for the day chose her Elsa costume, and she was by far the happiest person in the Coles supermarket. In your world, in a Tasmanian cemetery, a fur seal was found. He was sleeping in the toilet. The wildlife officers named him Sammy and then gave him a lift back to the beach. The pictures are fucking adorable. Chapter 2 on a quiet Wednesday night in the kitchen of a country house... I love the cooking sounds that are going to be in this. <laughs> I asked a group of women what they thought should be in sex ed. I didn't have any sex education at my school.
3: That's why I find mm-hmm. it fascinating because like, all of the kids now have had something. You know what Amelia... Amelia is our assistant director. She would say that they lack the language to talk with each other during sexual acts. Yeah. So they teach you about consent, but they give you this kind of very flimsy tea metaphor that's a little bit too black and white. She says in the moment,
1: yeah. they still
3: don't know how to talk to each other. And they don't know how to have those awkward conversations. And they're not even yeah. told that the conversations will be awkward and that's okay. So they go in thinking that everything's going to be smooth and sexy like in the movies or in porn. And they're not ready for all the like weirdness. And that's where they run into problems.
1: Yeah, I hear people saying like, Oh, but it kills the mood to have to stop and ask, can I do this? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, actually, no, it's basically dirty talk. Yeah. If you do it right. Yeah, yeah it's well- like. I really want to do this to
3: you. Yeah. Which like, is funny because they would never teach fun. dirty talk. No. Like, no. Because they just wouldn't,
4: they, they would just wouldn't even frame it that it way. Like, it can it be dirty talk, dirty guys. Talk.
3: <laughs> You'd just be like, don't go yeah. there. No, stop speaking. Yeah, no. the one thing that I wish someone had told me is like, wait, there will be no shortage of opportunities to have sex in your life. Mm. So just calm down. When you're at a party, it doesn't have to be like right away. Like
1: you can wait Yeah. for mm-hmm. yeah. the right situation to come about. At some point, the conversation inevitably turned to porn.
3: I didn't see porn until I was no, 16 or 17, and then it was my friend's grandfather's stash from the <laughs> 70s. <laughs> and it was just like, it was so, yeah. I think the first thing I saw was the Paris Hilton one, and I found that so disturbing. I was like, this is not cool. She's just a young girl, like I was glad that I could see through. And just no, I've like, never seen that one. Yeah. What happens on it? She just looks utterly bored, oh, and then she the idea cool. that... It's not, like, she's not consenting to, to be watched by everyone else. Like, this is something she's just mm. doing in this. So that just made me feel really... Wait, she, she knew she was being picked. Yeah, she, know, she, she, didn't she didn't know it was going to go Go local. Yeah. Because she was, like, I think she was only 18 or 19 or something. And, yeah. I was just like, I, I'm not enjoying this. She doesn't look like she's enjoying herself. It never looks like girls are enjoying themselves no. <laughs>
1: The next day, I suddenly remembered my first experience of porn. I was about 12 or 13, and chatting on 9msn with this gay boy a few years older than me and he wrote this is the kind of men I like and he sent me a link and I clicked on it but I think actually what I was looking at was the pop-up that came with it because suddenly my screen was covered in the naked bodies of women but because he had said they were men and because these silken forms didn't look like what I thought of as a woman's body I presumed they were men and I stared at them And I tried to work it out, and I stared at their genitals and went, I thought they protruded more than that. And I stared at their breasts and thought, I am sure that most men don't come with those. And so I wrote to him, are these the kind of men you like? And he said, yes. And I said, men with breasts? And he said, what? No. And eventually we worked it out and we had a laugh, but I always remember that moment of confusion where I stared at those alien bodies with absolutely no idea what gender they could be because their shiny forms seemed so otherworldly and so disconnected from my own 13-year-old body. So back to the Wednesday night. Are you looking up? Yeah, I'm trying to find my little like pony this. corn Where is? Which is the site? I don't know. Oh, they've got
3: tits. Yeah, they're super hot. Oh, this one's got a story. Making out ponies. Okay, let's do oh, a commentary.
1: Looks, that looks like a boy boy, boy pony.
3: pony. Girl pony. He's like
1: angry. Did the boy pony just thrust into the girl pony? They're not moving much. <clears throat> boy oh, pony looks oh, really yeah. surprised. Yep, there's some thrusting. And Some big testicles. Oh, you can see it in the mirror? Is it a mirror? Oh no, it's just oh, a close yeah. up. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, he's wearing condom. <laughs> That's nice. That's real nice. This happens for a they while. They got some nice romantic. She seems happy. <laughs> She's totally into it. Finally, we yeah, we're enjoying always, sex. They're in the porn. always into we it. Had maybe. to find ponies. <laughs> to find <laughs> <it>. <laughs> oh, is he howling? Oh, oh they, they just, just came. Really surprised before.
3: Oh,
1: that's the end of that episode. Pony is having a bit of a cuddle. Take it to your heart. <laughs> oh my time to turn it off, I think. <laughs> I think so. Time to turn us all off. <laughs> Do you guys remember the first time you saw porn?
3: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I remember reading erotic fiction on the internet as a teenager and feeling so horrified. I don't even know how I got to that corner of the internet. I think I was just kind of stumbling around in the in the darkness of the internet with a flashlight that was my keyboard and then occasionally like stumbling around corners and being like, Oh gosh, oh I'm sorry, I didn't mean to oh and just like running away again. (laughs) Like some befuddled British like station master
2: like the Victorian wallflower that you are.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. I was about nine or 10. I went around to a friend's house and they had a modem. And th- this was pretty crazy because I'd been reading about modems in like the 64K computer magazines that my uncles oh. in England would get me.
1: You're really old, hey? Yeah, I know.
2: <laughs> We ended up on these places called electronic bulletin boards, which Mm. were kind of proto-version of message boards. But most of it was text-based. The first sort of stuff was reading these sort of erotic tales of, Mm. you know, completely unbelievable stories of people going to parties and having lots of sex.
1: I was talking about the first time that I saw those naked women mm-hmm. and I was trying to mm. explain why it was so surprising and I realised that all of the women's bodies that I had seen up to that point were were mm. incredibly unsexualized. women having a shower. Um, yeah, yeah. A really nice photo of my best friend's mum with, like, a smiley face drawn on her naked tummy that was in her room. (laughs) That's lovely. Tummies that had carried babies and these breasts that had fed babies, and that was what I thought of as a full-grown woman's naked body. And I just remember Mm. the glow of those bodies on the screen, the pink and goldness of them, and just, (laughs) like, it was just a colour scale that I didn't really associate with human nudity. I think I was quite unusual in that I grew up without an experience of sort of airbrushing before then. We didn't have a TV and there wasn't magazines around the house or anything like that. And I really didn't think about my body from the neck down until I got mm. to university.
3: I remember being at high school and um, this girl in my class was walking in front of me upstairs and I noticed that she had shaved her legs. At the time I remember being like, Oh my God, she's even less cool than me and even she shaves her legs. So I should definitely start doing it because yeah. like that's that's like I'm really out of the loop now. And I remember kind of being like, Oh, whoa, like like it's not an option. Everyone has to shave their legs. Yeah. That's what you have to do when, you know, if you if you want to be not even, like, trying to look hot if you just want to be normal. I've never even thought about doing that, but it's so clearly the status quo and I'm conforming to it. So I'd better get on that bandwagon.
2: As a young man, you get exposed to print pornography fairly early, mm. and that's almost exclusively just pictures of women. There's this sort of unspoken homoeroticism to the idea that you're not going to enjoy porn unless there is male nudity involved as well. Mm. The idea that Mm. it's totally okay to be getting off on naked male form as a straight guy consuming straight pornography. Everywhere else where you might encounter a real male naked body, like in the change rooms at the pool or gym or, you know, in a men's room, there is this hawk-like, hyper-alert, (laughs) hyper-vigilant sense that one must not be caught checking out another guy. Mm. um, Mm. Because what would that mean? And yet, somehow, the naked male form is completely indispensable to most men's experiences of straight pornography.
0: Chapter 3 There's something deeply human about going for a walk and a think. The ancient Romans used to say, Solvator ambulando, it is solved by walking. When you put your feet one after the other, somehow it helps you to do the same with your thoughts. My surname is Walker. It's also my father's name, and I've always found that particularly apt because in 1981, my dad went for a walk, a really long one. He walked from Canberra to Adelaide in late April as the weather was beginning to turn cold by himself. That story had long been family myth that was told in little drabs here and there, but I'd never actually asked him why he did it. So when I was visiting him in France this year, I asked him. How far is it? between those cities?
4: 1,600 kilometres.
0: And how long did it take you?
4: 55 days.
0: So so why did you walk from Canberra to Adelaide?
4: Well, I was working in a computer industry that was driving me insane. The people were all tossers and I decided to give it all in and actually do something for me because I'd been divorced about two or three years I'd been with a girl for a while who gave me the flick. I thought, I should do something for me. So I decided to walk to Adelaide. And most people thought, why would to do something stupid like that? I thought, "What just seemed a good idea at the time.
0: There are certain traits that I share with my father. We both love puns. We both rub our hands together when we're thinking. You can hear him doing it when he's talking on this recording. And we both have the habit of leaping headfirst into a situation despite being woefully underprepared.
4: When I looked at the size of the pack I was going to have to carry, my chiropractor said, if you do that, you'll die. But I thought, well, what do they know? She's only been in the industry for all her life. So I decided to start walking. But then on the day I went, I sat down there and I put this pack on my back. I got about 5 k down the road, I thought, this is killing me. Will I ever make it? And then I sort of slaved away through the day, and when I put my tent down at night, I looked back, and I could still see the lights of Canberra. I thought, this is not very good. And after about 10 days, uh, my feet had so many blisters on them, they were squelching as I put my feet down.
0: I had always imagined that Dad was walking through foliage, forests and fields along walking tracks. But to get from Canberra to Adelaide, there really isn't a trail you can follow. So he just walked along the side of the road, facing the traffic, metres from cars and semi-trailers. He even slept there just off the bitumen.
4: Because the side of the road uh, slopes, I used to find I used to have really bad problems with having uneven stance. So I used to wear a sand shoe on my left foot and my boot on my right foot to keep it straight and it's to make it a bit even to walk on. It was quite interesting. Did people
0: stop to try to offer you lifts very often?
4: Interesting enough, yes, because at the time I was bearded. I had long hair. I looked a bit scruffy. And the people that would stop would be little old ladies. Hello, son, what are you doing? I'm walking to Adelaide. Well, I'll give you a lift if you like. I say, well, no, actually, I'm walking. Thanks very much for the... Well, yeah, yeah. Um, it was interesting, mainly colder women. It was quite strange.
0: He mostly said no to the lifts. And so the day settled into a routine. Get up around seven, pack up the campsite, take his frozen water bottles and yesterday's damper and walk. Around six at night he'd stop, make camp, cook dinner, write a little. And that was it. Sunrises and sunsets and in between the road and the sky and a lot of space to think.
4: I think I think I finally worked out I was a bit of a tosser. Um, what do uh, you mean? Well, I you know I'd screwed up a lot with uh, my first marriage and with my with my girlfriend, and I realised that it was probably me, not them. And so, and then I started to think a bit more of uh, how better I should treat somebody else if I met them again, mm. and not be such an idiot. Um,
0: what was it that you were doing that wasn't training people well?
4: Oh, well, I was very young when I first got married, so I, and um, I was a bit of a lad, so if there happened to be a spare, um, uh, well, there's a few women involved, you might say, just, just quietly. Uh, yeah, well, Anyway, so yeah, I thought I'd be a bit better. I'm
0: travelling now, but my experience of travel is very different to my father's because I have an iPhone. So even when I'm on the other side of the world, I'm never far from Wi-Fi. And so I'm in pretty constant communication with other people, including him. He sends me a lot of texts to make sure I'm still alive. But back in 1981, trudging across the country, he was extremely isolated.
4: I used to keep in touch with my father. So I would write to him and then he would send me mails back. And I'd pick them up at various GPOs along the way. So it was quite, it was quite fun. Uh, my brothers never wrote to me. Um, I just, uh, just kind of thought I was mad, I suppose. Um, in fact, nobody but my dad wrote to me.
0: I feel like because you grew up with five brothers and then you were in the Air Force and then you were kind of constantly in relationships, I feel like you probably had never really had very much time in your life when you'd really truly been alone.
4: Oh, very true, very true. Um, it was, uh, yeah, It was difficult. I don't think I really had been out by myself... Uh, as a lot of younger people out they go on their gap years and they go overseas and they, they do wondrous things. My elder brother did, Dennis. He used to go by himself, but what he found was he used to get lonely.
0: And did you find that you got lonely?
4: No, not at all. Um, it, was quite, it was quite good, actually, because I could sit down there and I could write and uh, I could... You know, I could you know, it never really... I never really sat there and said, oh, woe is me, what a lonely little boy I am. I used to think, yeah, this is kind of cool. I I did meet some lovely people along the way. Um, You know, as I say, I was a bit of a hairy little fella, and I'd run out of water one time. I was out in the middle of the nulla nulla somewhere, and I was heading to this place, and I used, as I say, normally used to walk 30 clicks a day. Well, I'd done 36 that day. And that that extra six doesn't sound much, but but that's a fair bit of walking. And I was bone dry, and I... I went into this place, and I saw these sets of lights. There was this huge, big water tanks. So I thought, that's my place. Knocked on the door, I said, rrr, 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 and the girl, girl says, Coke? Coke? Did you want a Coke? And she gave me a Coke, and I said, well, actually, what I'm really wanting, it was some water for my water bottles, because I'm hiking across to Adelaide. And she said, well, why don't you come in? I went, um, you know, here's me. I look like a dust bowl walking on. And she said, come in. Her husband said, yeah, come in would you like a shower? And I thought, I've died and gone to heaven. So I had a shower and they said, you could stay the night because our elder daughter's gone away and she's, you could stay in her bed. And I went, I wouldn't do this to anybody. It's just walking in off the street. What the hell? After working with these pack of arseholes for years, you suddenly meet these really nice people and you think, not everybody's an arsehole out there.
0: And so what was it like the day that you walked into Adelaide?
4: Well... The one thing about going into Adelaide from where I was is that I came in uh, from Oyan and you pull into Talon Bend. And from Talon Bend to Adelaide is about 100 clicks from where I was, which I knew I could drive in an hour. But I knew it would take me four days to get there. That was quite disheartening because from that, in going into Talon Bend from there up into Murray Bridge is really, Jesus, it's the most dead countryside you've ever been in, right? Anyway, I walked down the hill, and at the end of my street, where my dad lives, was a phone box. And I rang him. I said, "Hey, pa, I put the kettle on. I'm home." And he was out on the edge of the road, and I walked up there, and I just burst into tears. I said, "Pa, this is the hardest thing I've done in my life." And he said, "Oh, so it's glad to see you." And it was, but it was, um, yeah, it was hard. I just realised how hard when I got to the end of it.
0: I asked him how he thought the walk had changed him.
1: Well,
4: I think it gave me a bit more of an insight of what I could do. And so when people have said to me, a couple of times it's happened work-wise, when they said, you can't do that, I've gone, you can't say that. Because people said to me I couldn't do the walk, and I did it. And when people say you can't, you do it anyway, just to prove you can. Mm. I mean, I've screwed up a lot since, but... I've done some things I've been proud of.
0: And was there one moment or one thing that you saw or experienced that was really, really beautiful while you were doing that walk?
4: Well, I think a couple of little wee things like that, like the the family put me up for the night. Somebody knocked on my door, I wouldn't put them up for the night, so I think that was really beautiful. Another time, this, this guy came up and he was clearing out the the trees underneath the electrical stuff. And he had a girl with him, and they were chopping the stuff down. We had a bit of a chat. and made him a cup of tea. And I heard him, you know, ringing, ringing, going through the trees. And he came back after about an hour. and said, oh, we're off for the day. I said, oh, OK, well, have a good night. He said, oh, by the way, I've chopped up a tree for you, for your fire tonight. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, it might not seem much, but to some guy who's freezing his dice off, that's a pretty good thing, uh, in the middle of nowhere, so... That was kind of nice. It? I so I thought, I think that's what it gave me. It gave me the fact that there are really nice people in the world. They're not all groping, grasping, conniving bastards. There's some lovely people. do so, you know they don't have to give you much, but it's nice when they do give you something. It's lovely. Chapter four.
2: I arrive at Gardenau on a humid Thursday midnight. The air has a faint tang of hashish and the sound on the street is something I soon recognize as victory. France has just beaten Germany in the Euro 2016, and everywhere, spontaneous street parties erupt at the slightest provocation. A crowd celebrating outside a bar surround a car stopped at the lights. The music is turned up, and to the honking of car horn, the driver and passengers get out and start dancing too. For the time the light is red, they all dance, shout congratulations, shake hands, and high five. If the light has since gone green, no one notices or cares. By the time I get my phone out to start filming, it's over. Drivers and passengers pile back in and drive off to the sound of more honking and joyful shouts from the revelers at the bar. I see this scene repeated several more times with variations a scooter instead of a car, two separate crowds at facing cafes converging to the same effect. Each time, those in transit are more than happy to pause and share a moment of jubilation with their fellow Parisians. One of them bails me up, and his French eventually emerges through my fogged ears. (inaudible) N'a gagné quoi? N'a gagné quoi? On a gagné quoi? Did we win or what? Eventually, I manage. Oui, uh, on a gagné. yeah, we won. And although the victory isn't mine to claim, tonight that really doesn't matter. I'm filled with the feeling that, even though I'm not really sure what the fortunes of the national football team have been, that these Parisians, and perhaps France too, really needed a win after the year they've had, and their brothers in Brussels, and what's just happened in the U.S. To see Parisians, black, white, Arab, Asian, all share a moment of pure joy and togetherness, the kind of thing that non-sporty people like me don't usually get to see or participate in. It felt that This moment of unity is the kind of thing that carries a diverse and plural society through the darker moments when outside forces attempt to divide them. Paris deserved their party last night, and I eventually found my way to the tiny studio apartment in the 9th district and told myself I would just rest a moment and then go out and join them. And then it was 5am and the moment was gone. But it was okay. Because that transcendent moment of fraternity it wasn't really for me. The people it was for, they lived it to the full and they didn't need my participation. And none of us knew what was going to happen barely a week later. But I'm glad I got to bear witness to that moment and hope that some of the togetherness that was forged that night helped to carry them through what came
3: next. This year has been really full on and really, there's been all these terrible things happening at a pace which seems unusually fast. And I don't know whether it's just because we're hearing more reporting or whether it's just happening in places that are slightly more Western and that's why we're hearing about them, but yeah it does it does feel I feel unsettled in a way that I'm not used to feeling. It's really lovely to remember that even when terrible things like this happen, there are there are things that bring us together so simply. So some men running around and kicking a ball on a big bit of grass makes so many people so happy. and that's it's wonderful that we can we can find that.
1: I think um, it's important to when these terrible things happen, to be able to look around and say like, right now right here it's not Mm. happening and you know that Mm. can sound very like well fuck it I'm okay but I don't mean it like that I mean it's absolutely crucial to acknowledge that horrific things are happening but also to acknowledge that in other places they're not and that the world is still moving and that the vast majority of people go about their lives without hurting anyone without Mm. wanting to hurt anyone thinking only of doing their job Getting on with life, bringing mm. some joy to the people around them, making lunches. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, I guess it is worth remembering that no matter what, the majority of the world is at peace right now mm. with people just yeah. living their lives and mostly being nice to each other and occasionally mm. being a little bit of a dick to each other, but not, not taking up weapons and causing damage.
1: It's a fair guess that the most violent thing that will have happened in my day today Will have been when the tram moved really fast and suddenly on the way in, and I fell over onto a lady. <laughs> that's a pretty good level of violence to have in your life. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's so easy to forget that that's all it is most days for most people because because when it's bad, it's so bad and it's so mm. frightening. <laughs> and that's the thing in Japan mm. this week where someone stabbed 16 mentally disabled patients to death in their sleep. And that mm. is the ugliest thing I can imagine. Mm. But then also, elsewhere in the world, someone has helped 16 mentally disabled patients have a shower mm. and get yeah. dry and get dressed.
2: Mm. Yeah, we um, we went and saw some comedy earlier in the week and one of the comedians mm. said you know it's worth remembering that mosquitoes have killed more people than all the wars ever and <laughs> it gets us in the in the heart and it gets us in the feels when humans yeah. do bad things to other humans but we're still not our own worst enemy yet there's so much other stuff going on we're at the mercy of like tiny little six-legged insects clean drinking water can save more lives than all the counter-terrorism measures in the world.
3: Apparently, most of the adults in the history of the world have died because of their teeth, because of tooth problems. Really? Uh, So, yeah. So so glad I went to the dentist recently. (laughs) Exactly. Keep flossing. See your dentist every six months and it's all going to be okay.
1: Contact Mike is produced by Kieran Ruffles, who also makes all the music that you hear in every episode, with the exception of the pony porn soundtrack. If you
0: like what we do and would like other people to be able to find us more easily, jump on iTunes and rate or review us. It only takes a couple of seconds and it really helps us make contact with new listeners. Plus, we'll love you forever and ever. This has been Contact Mike. This episode episode ends
1: ends now. now. (laughs) Ha <laughs>